Uh, good morning. If you're new with us, uh, welcome. We're so grateful that you're here this morning. My name is Ryan Ross. I have the privilege of serving here as one of the pastors. And I just want to personally welcome you and once again let you know how grateful we are uh, that you're here and you chose to be with us this morning. Uh, when you came in, you should have received a handout with a Connect card on it uh, or in it. If you would uh, take that right now and do us a favor and fill that out, tear off the bottom that Connect card, and then after the gathering this morning, uh, we'll have Starting Point. It's the first Sunday of every month. It's just a way uh, for you to get connected and learn a little bit more about our church. We really do believe here at Veritas that Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection has made us into a family. That's not just something cute we like to say. We really do believe that that has taken place. And so we are a family in Jesus, and we want to invite you into that family. And so that's a great first step uh, for you to do that. So if you'll fill that out and take it with you to starting point this morning after the gathering, uh, we'd love to see you there. If you've got your Bible, you can start making your way to Genesis chapter 13. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 13 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, uh, good news, we have one for you right over there on that table. You can go grab one, and that's our gift to you as a church uh, for you to keep. But let's look at this together now. Genesis chapter 13, we'll read the entire chapter. Starting in verse 1, let's hear what God says. It says, So Abraham went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and Lot with him into the, the, into the Negev. Now Abraham was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai to the place where he had made an altar at the first, and there Abraham called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abraham, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abraham's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abraham said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we're kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I'll go to the right. If you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abraham settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abraham, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abraham moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Well, when we uh, left off with Father Abraham last week, he had just made a fool of himself in Egypt, pimping out his own wife to save his own skin and putting the promises of God in jeopardy. 
Uh, but God made sure that the promises would still come to pass. He protected them by uh, putting plagues on Pharaoh and his household so that Pharaoh gave, Pharaoh gave Sarah back to Abraham. And so Abraham and Sarah start their journey back from Egypt to the land that God had promised them. And I, I think we just need to stop here and have to imagine uh, that had to be the most awkward camel ride back to Egypt ever, right? Like, I just imagine she looks over at different points like, really, can, can you just explain your thought process there? Like, say you're my sister. You really thought that was going to work out? I mean, like, what were you thinking? And, and so they get back to the promised land. They get this journey back. And when they get back, it says that Abraham goes back to the beginning, to the place he was when God called him in chapter 12, when he first came into the land. And he goes to where he first went to the land, where he first built an altar, and he worships. He calls upon the name of the Lord. Now listen, this is a beautiful picture of what repentance is. Repentance is turning around, going back to the beginning, and coming back to Jesus. Repentance is realizing that you have been walking towards sin and turning around to start walking back towards Jesus. So often when we sin and we're confronted with our failure, instead of just repenting and turning around and coming back to Jesus, we add sin on top of more sin. So we sin, we're confronted with our failure, and we run away from God to wallow in shame and self-loathing because we feel like if we hate ourselves enough about it and we beat ourselves up enough over this sin, that'll be enough to pay for it. Or we run away from God and try to clean ourselves up and make ourselves fit for God's presence again. But listen, neither of those responses understand God's grace. Neither of those responses understand the way that God relates to us. But Abraham understands the grace of God because he's just been met with it because he was a fool in Egypt, but God protected him and did not quit on him even when he was faithless and foolish, pimping out his own wife to save his own skin. Abraham knows that his failure is not the end of his story, so he comes back, he turns around, he repents, and he worships Jesus. Listen, walking by faith in God is not about being perfect. None of us are going to be perfect in this life. It's about trusting God's power to save and God's power to keep his promise and God's power to hold on to us. Abraham can repent here and come back to Jesus because his faith is not in the power of his own faith or his ability to keep himself. His faith is in the power of God to keep his promises and hold on to him. And so he comes back and he worships and we should do the same thing. When you sin, when you fail, don't run from God to try to wallow in shame over it or try to clean yourself up from it. Repent, turn around, go back to the beginning, come back to Jesus. And because this repentance and renewal and worship at the altar, uh, it changes Abraham, it renews him. At the end of chapter 12, last week, what is he doing? He's scheming, he's controlling, he's trying to manipulate and control the situation to save his own skin, but what does he do here? A conflict starts up between his herdsmen and Lot's herdsmen because the way you kind of express wealth in this period of time was by having more livestock. And so they've both gotten so wealthy and have so much livestock that the land is not going to be able to hold both of them. And so they get into this conflict. And in this society, like, Abraham's older. That means he's more important. He's the patriarch. He's the one the promise came to. He's more valuable. And so Abraham uh, gets to decide what goes, and Lot doesn't get a say in it. Like, whatever Abraham says, that's what's going to happen. And so that's the custom that Abraham should get first choice, but what does Abraham do instead? 
he, he seeks to be a peacemaker, and he says, Lot, we don't need to fight about this. We're brothers. We're family. And so listen, you take your pick. If you want to go to the right, go to the right. If you want to go to the left, go to the left. It's your pick. You take the first choice. Now, this is different, right? In chapter 12, he tries to take matters into his own hands. He's going to do it again in chapter 16 with Hagar, but here he trusts God. He's not trying to control the situation like he did before. He's not trying to make things happen. No, he thinks, okay, God has made promises. He's going to keep them. I'm just going to be trust him and, and know that he's going to be faithful to keep them. And so he's freed up to say, like, I don't have to be in control in this situation because, God, you're in control in this situation. And so, Lot, you take the first pick. Whatever you choose is good with me. You see, Abraham knows that God has promised him the land, and so he can trust that whatever part Lot chooses, God's going to keep his promise to him. He can be freed up to go low and take the low seat, and, and so he's freed up to just be open-handed. And I want you to notice that it's, it's Abraham's faith in the promise of God and the God of the promise that allows him to live in this sort of way where he gives up the, the first choice and he lives open-handed and I want to tell you that this freedom is available to us as well. Like, how freeing would it be if we could get to the point where we could just believe, like, yeah, God has got me. I can trust him. I don't have to scheme. I don't have to manipulate. I don't have to try to control this situation and try to get my own way to do what benefits me. I can just trust that God is going to be faithful to me and bring his promises to pass. Now look, this does not mean that you just kind of pull back and you let go and let God don't let go and let God and you don't do anything, but it does mean that, that by the grace of God, we might be able to get to a point where we stop going into every situation only thinking about what's going to be good for me, myself, and I. It, it does mean by the grace of God, we might be able to get to a point where we go into every situation without an angle, without trying to figure out how is this going to benefit me? How is this going to bring comfort and pleasure to me? And I think beyond that, and on top of that, if we're not able to be open-handed like Abraham is here with this stuff, it might reveal that that stuff is what's getting our trust and our fear instead of God. And so, for example, this text is not saying, and I'm not saying, that you've got to give away all of your money, but if every time an opportunity to bless someone or to be generous comes up, and every time that happens, you always have an excuse about like, I just don't know if that's a really good time right now. You know, I just don't think that's a wise financial decision for us. We've got this thing that we're saving up to do. If there's always an excuse about why you can't do it right now, it might reveal that that has become an idol in your life. It's the same thing with your plans and dreams for your life. If you, say, if you can't be open-handed with those and say, yeah, I thought I wanted to go this way, but God, clearly you're taking me this way, I'll follow you. If on the other hand you say, no, this is what I'm going to do with my life, and, and I'm not following you, God, unless you lead me there, like that has become an idol in your life. That's become what you're trusting in and what you're hoping in instead of God. And this is what we see next in this text with Lot. Because if Abraham in this text gives us an example of what it looks like to walk by faith, Lot gives us an example of what it looks like to walk by sight. Because Abraham kind of gives him the first choice here, but in verse 10, instead of deferring back to Abraham and Lot saying like, no, Abraham, you're my superior. You're more important than me. You're the one the promise came to. You're the one that's going to be the blessing to the world. Like, you take the first pick. Instead, verse 10 tells us that Lot lifts up his eyes and he sees that the Jordan Valley is well watered everywhere. It's well irrigated, meaning he can get richer there than he is right now. 
Uh, Robert Alter is a Jewish commentator who's written a commentary on the entire Old Testament, and he's an expert in biblical Hebrew, and he points out here uh, that all of this that's being spoken about this land is from Lot's perspective. And, and what he means by that is that it's not Moses the author, it's Lot who's being hyperbolic here, who's seeing the land and thinking, oh my gosh, this is like the garden of the Lord. This is just like Eden. I can get back to the garden and I can get there without God. Do you remember the science experiment that they did, I don't know how long ago, uh, where they had the kids in a room and they would put a marshmallow in front of them and the adult in the room would say, hey, uh, you can have this marshmallow right now when I leave the room, but I'm not going to give you another one, but I'm going to leave the room and come back. And if you wait until I come back, uh, I'll give you two marshmallows instead of one. Well, Lot is the kid that stuffs his face with the marshmallow as soon as the adult leaves the room, right? He's walking by sight. He's crunching the numbers, and he's saying, I can get richer here. This place is well irrigated. It's well watered. My business is going to just blow up if I go this way. Like, this is the place I need to go. This is where I need to be. Now, the first rule of real estate is what? Location, location, location. And believe it or not, Lot's not actually very good at picking location here because, yes, he thinks it looks like the garden of the Lord, but there's also an ominous note here in the passage, which is that he also thinks it looks like the land of Egypt. Now, what just happened in the land of Egypt? Sin and foolishness, right? Bad stuff. Like, why would Lot ever want to go back there? Why would he ever want to go to a place that looks like that? On top of that, what has God just called Abraham and promised to him in chapter 12? That those who stick around Abraham, who bless Abraham, are going to be blessed. Lot should be thinking, man, those around Abraham are going to be blessed. I'm only blessed right now because I'm around him. I want to stick by him. I want to be a part of this promise. Like, yeah, our herdsmen are fighting. Let's work it out so that we don't have to do this. And that's not all. Verse 13 says that the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. I mean, they are just a bunch of trash bags. If you don't believe me, wait until chapter 19. I promise you, you'll see. And Lot knows this. Lot knows that this is their reputation, but verse 12 tells us that he moves his tent as far as Sodom. Like, none of these things factor into Lot's decision-making here at all because he's walking by sight, not by faith. Lot is doing what First uh, John 2 calls the lust of the eyes. This is what he's driven by, by what looks appealing and desirable. I mean, this is Eve in the garden all over again with the forbidden fruit, seeing that it looks desirable, that it'll taste good, that it will make her wise and taking the fruit. Like God and his promises are not even a consideration at all as Lot makes his choice here. I think this is why Kent Hughes says that Lot is the type of man who would choose heaven over hell if he was given the choice but he would not choose heaven over earth. He, he wants the gifts without the giver. He wants the garden without God. And so once again, Lot is being presented to us in this text as an example of what it looks like to walk by sight. And so I think it would be good for us here to just ask ourselves the question, do we look like Lot here? Like parents, when you think about the future of your children, would it thrill your heart more if when they graduated high school, if they wanted to go spend their lives on the mission field overseas, making Jesus known in a hard place that's never heard his name, or if they got a D1 scholarship that meant a full ride to college? Like when you think about their future and, and your longings for them and your dreams for them, 
Are you longing more for them to be successful and well-adjusted and well-off in the world more than you long for them to deeply know, trust, love, and follow Jesus? When PCS or an opportunity to promote that would move you to a different place comes up, it's your only consideration, well, you know, this means a nicer place to live in Fayetteville and a pay raise, so of course this is a no-brainer. Like, of course I'm going to take the job. Like, is there any consideration of all, at all of how you might live on mission there? of what sort of churches are there, of what it would mean for your spiritual life to make this move, of what it would mean for the life of your family. I guess the best way to ask the question is, does God factor into your decision-making at all, or, or does he just get a passing nod and a quick, Lord, please bless this decision after you've already made it? Look, I, I think if we're honest with each other, uh, way more often than not, we look much more like Lot in this text than we do like Abraham. We walk by sight, not by faith. The good news is that there's a way out of this, and the way out is given to us at the end of this text. The third thing we see in this text is what it looks like to walk in the promises of God. Jump back into the text with me at verse 14. It says, the Lord said to Abraham, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abraham moved his tent, and he came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Now, this is pretty wild, too, because Abraham just kind of opens his hands up. He trusts God. He lets Lot have the first choice. He gives up first choice of the land, and in return, God promises to give him all of it. Now listen, this is really the dynamic of the kingdom. This is a reality that we see over and over in Scripture, Jesus tells us that those who humble themselves will be exalted, and those who exalt themselves will be humbled. He says that if you want to be first, you should be last of all and servant of all, that if you want to be high, you should go low. This reality is why Jesus can tell us in Matthew 6 that we're not to be anxious about our lives because he's going to provide for us. Rather, we should seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things we need will be added to us. One of the people I was studying this week pointed out that this is the dynamic of the kingdom, that this is the way that God works because so often God is trying to give us more of himself. Look, when we live by sight like Lot and we seek to find satisfaction in what earthly things can give us, they always turn up empty. They can't bear the weight of satisfying our souls and giving us freedom. Asking them to is like trying to build a house with a foundation of cardboard. It cannot bear the weight that you're trying to put on it. We're either going to crush the thing we're trying to find freedom in, or it's going to crush us with disappointment when it doesn't provide for us. But when, like Abraham, we can trust the promise of God and know that God is faithful and God will provide, we're freed up to know that whether or not we do get that thing in this life, whether or not our circumstances do get better or not, that Jesus is better and that he will be enough. In fact, I think this is so often what God is trying to do in us. In verse 17, after God reiterates this promise to Abraham, he says, go walk the length and breadth of the land because I'm going to give it to you. 
But the reality is, is that all, of the, all the part of the land that Abraham will own at the time of his death is just a burial plot in this land. And it will be 25 years from the time that God calls him and promises that him and Sarah will have a son. It'll be 25 years until that boy is born. Like their whole life is characterized by waiting on the promise of God. And I think this is intentional. I think God is doing this on purpose. Hebrews 6 says that we are to imitate those like Abraham and Sarah who through faith and patience inherit the promise of God. This is really the life of faith that you and I are going to walk, a walk that looks much like Abraham's and Sarah's, a walk characterized by waiting on God to fulfill his promises, a walk of faith characterized by looking forward and hoping in the future that is to come. And and I think the reason why this is the case uh, is to borrow a phrase, uh, it's because what God is doing in us while we wait is much more important than what we're waiting for. And listen, we're going to see this over and over in the lives of Abraham and Sarah. I mean, think about it. If God comes to them in chapter 12 and he calls Abraham and he makes this promise and then nine months later, uh, Sarah is having a baby and they own the land in full. Yeah, they would have rejoiced and been happy about that. But the sort of depth of character and patience and endurance and trust and faith in God that they developed over 25 long years of waiting on him and walking with him, waiting for him to keep His promise just would not have been there at all. God was forming them. He was growing them. He was maturing them. He was putting a depth of character in them. Like God is working in the waiting, and it's a good work. He is forming a depth of character and patience and endurance and trust in us that just does not happen any other way. He's trying to bring us closer to himself so that we might walk with him and know him and engage with him deeply. Listen, I want this so desperately. I know you want this for your life. And so when this happens, when God makes you wait, don't get angry that he made you wait. Rejoice that he wants you to come out of the waiting, loving and trusting him more. Rejoice that he's doing something in you, that he's forming you, that he's trying to put a depth of character in you that's just not going to come any other way. Because what God is doing in us while we wait is much more important than what we're waiting for. God is working in the pain. He's working in the waiting. But uh, I think if we're honest with each other, that sounds really pretty and flowery, right? Like just wait on the Lord, trust God. He'll put this depth of character in you. You'll just be this deep man or woman of faith who walks with God. But the reality is that trying to do this is incredibly, incredibly hard, right? I mean, even Abraham and Sarah, we saw last week, and we'll see over and over again all these times that they doubt the promises of God and doubt whether or not God's really going to come through for them and try to take matters into their own hands. And so as awesome of an example as Abraham is for us in this text, he cannot be the one that we look to. I just want to keep pointing you back to this. Trying to be like Abraham is not going to be enough because Abraham was a sinner just like us. And just like he does, we're going to have just as many Genesis 12 moments in Egypt and Genesis 16 moments with Hagar where we fail to trust the promises of God and feel like we've got to take matters into our own hands if this is going to come through for us at all. This is a glorious reality, this life of faith and walking by faith and trusting God that God is calling us into, but it's incredibly difficult and it's not something that we can do in our own strength. And so where do we find the power to do it? 
Well, we find the power to walk by faith in God like this, not by looking to Abraham, but by looking to the one to whom Abraham points. You see, Abraham's example in this text of going low, of giving up the first choice, pales in comparison. It it points beyond himself and gives us a picture of his greater son. You see, because thousands of years after this moment, Jesus will come, and just like Abraham, he will have a choice set out before him. He'll be in the wilderness being tempted by the devil, and the devil will take him to a high mountain and show him all the kingdoms of the earth, all the land, and he will say, all of this can be yours if you will simply bow down and worship me. No more pain, no more waiting. You don't have to go through with the cross. And all Jesus had to do in that moment is think, you know what? God is being kind of slow to fulfill his promises towards me. I mean, he says I'm his son. He says he loves me. But ever since he said that, all I've experienced is 40 days starving in the desert with nothing but rocks to look at. And what Satan is offering here, this looks really enticing and appealing. I don't want to wait. I don't want to have to go through the cross. I'll take this right now. That's all he had to do, but he refuses. He refuses to walk by sight. He walks by faith. He trusts God, and he's completely obedient to God. He's obedient all the way to the point of death. You see, Abraham's example of giving up the first choice, of going low and taking the low seat, pales in comparison to what Jesus has done, like the light of a candle pales in comparison to the light of the sun. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9 says that though Jesus was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor so that through his poverty we might become rich. Philippians 2 tells us that even though Jesus is very God of very God, he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Instead, he humbled himself to the deepest depths by taking on our humanity and becoming a man. Jesus is the creator of the universe. He's the Lord and God over it all. Yet he humbled himself and did not stay in heaven and became truly and fully human. Think of how humbling this is. The creator of the universe had to learn how to walk and talk. He got hungry and tired. He pooped his diaper as a baby. He went through puberty. His voice cracked. He probably got the flu at some point in his life. He got sick and threw up. Like the bread of life, the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills was hungry. The one who never sleeps nor slumbers got tired. The one who says the earth and all of its fullness was his had nowhere to lay his head. The God who is full of life in and of himself had to depend on Mary and Joseph to keep him alive. The God who is life himself submitted himself to death, and not just any death, the most painful and shameful death imaginable, death on a cross, and he did it all for us. He became poor so that in him we might have true riches. He went low so that we could be exalted with him. He did not look to his own interests. He looked to ours. He needs nothing. He owes us nothing. He doesn't need anything from us, yet he did not stay in heaven. He humbled himself, took on flesh, and came after us. This is the best news in the universe, that though we have all gone astray, though we have all turned away, though we have all failed to trust the God of the promise and the promises of God, Jesus did not leave us in our sin. He gave it all up so that he could come win us, so that we could have life with him, so that our sins and failures and lack of faith would not get the last word over our lives, because now his work on the cross for us does. 
And it's good news. And it's living in this good news and trusting in this good news that actually gives us the power to go low and live open-handed like Jesus does. I think I've used this illustration from G.K. Beale with you before, but uh, imagine that you've got a dad with a son born in 1893. And so in 1898, when the son turns five years old, he really loves his dad's uh, horse-drawn carriage. And so his dad promises him that when he turns 18, uh, he, he will get him a horse-drawn carriage uh, just like the one he has. He'll take him down to the DMV, they'll get his carriage license, and he'll get him a brand new horse carriage, right? Well, in 1908, 10 years after that moment, when the boy is 15, the Model T Ford, the very first car, gets invented. And so let's say three years later, in 1911, when the son turns 18, uh, his dad gets him a brand new Model T Ford. Do you think the son is going to be upset with his dad because his dad got him the car instead of the horse-drawn carriage? No. I'll answer that for you. No. He's not going to be upset about that, right? And do you think that his dad went back on the promise he made to his son by getting him a car instead of a horse-drawn carriage? No. Once again, no. Of course not. He went above and beyond. He fulfilled the promise in an even greater way than his son could have ever imagined. The same thing is true for what God does for us in Jesus. We will not just inherit a piece of land in the Middle East. No, those who follow Jesus are promised to inherit the entire new earth. That's the land that God will give us. That's where we will walk with Jesus. Look, through Jesus, these are our promises. This is our story. Through Jesus, we are Abraham's offspring. We are the ones who will inherit these promises made by God. This is what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 3. He says, in Christ, all things are yours. We will spend eternity with Jesus, walking with him on a new earth, and it's hope in this reality that actually frees us up to live open-handed now. Because if we know that everything, everything we need, everything that we were created for, everything that will satisfy our souls, if we know that that satisfaction is coming in Jesus, and everything we, will create, we were created for will one day be ours in Jesus, then we don't need any of it right now. Like, everything is found in Him, and if we know that, we can truly be free. If we know the truth of Romans 8.32, that He who did not spare His own Son for us, but freely gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him give us all things if we know that reality, we're free to trust the providence and good control of God over our lives and over our situation. Like we don't have to be in control. We don't have to manage. We don't have to manipulate. We don't have to scheme. We don't have to try to get ours. We can just be free. Like if I don't get that thing in this life, okay, well, God's going to richly supply all my needs in Jesus, and, and I'll have an eternity to enjoy it with Him so I can be content. If I don't get to have that experience right now in this life, well, that's okay because it doesn't compare to the surpassing worth of knowing and having Jesus. If I don't ever see the fulfillment of something I'm waiting on for in this life, that's okay because this life is not my, my home. Like we're looking for a better country, a heavenly one, and that future is absolutely secure. It's more real than the hand in front of your face. All things are ours in Jesus, so we're just freed up to be content. Man, if we get it in this life, praise God. If we don't get it in this life, praise God. 
It's trusting the promises of God and the good news of what Jesus has done and won for us that allows us to live open-handed with our stuff and with our plans and with our dreams and with our experiences. But not only does it do that, it also allows us to live open-handed with our relationships like Abraham does with Lot here. Like, because of Jesus, we can be peacemakers who take the low seat and, and give up first choice because now we don't need to win the argument. We don't need to come in first. We don't need to come out on top. We don't have to prove our rightness. And so we can serve even when it isn't rewarded or returned by others. We can turn the other cheek. We can overlook an offense. We can forgive people of a multitude. We can let love cover a multitude of sins that people commit against us. Because even if we're not rewarded in this life, we will be rewarded and we are seen by Jesus. We are freed up to just lead the way in forgiveness and being open-handed like this because Jesus has won everything for us and we have everything we need in Him. What do you want? It's in Him. Satisfaction, value, approval, acceptance, identity, worth, righteousness. It's all found in Him. Listen, I want this sort of freedom in my life so badly. I so desperately want my life to be characterized by this sort of open-handedness and selflessness and just being willing to take the low seat. It's on the table for us because of what God has done for us in Jesus. When we trust the promises of God and the good news of the gospel, we can truly be free. Because the reality is that because of Jesus, our future is absolutely secure and it's incredibly bright. And so let's look to Jesus. Let's run the race of faith while looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, knowing that he has won everything we need for us. Let me pray that we would. Jesus, thank you for this reality and this good news that Abraham's example of going low and being selfless and trusting your promises pales in comparison to what you would would do and what you have done for us. And so as we come to respond now and come to your table, would you help us to just rest in this reality that though you were high and exalted, you went low so that we could be raised up. That though you had need of nothing, you humbled yourself and you became poor so that in you you we might know true riches. You gave it up for us. And so Jesus, help us to celebrate that as we sing, as we come to your table, as we respond. Help us to know that it's your blood that was poured out. It's your body that was broken so that we could live and and help us to know that it's this good news that empowers us to live uh, like you and to follow your example uh, of what you've done for us. And so give us the power to do that. Give us grace as we respond now to just taste and see how good you are and how much you really do love us, Jesus. In your name, amen.